Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew 21. It's good to say that again after having been away for so long. And we've been out of Matthew now for several weeks. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it's a joy to return there again this morning. And as you make your way to verses 23 through 27, the section we will be considering this morning, you will notice that once again, as we will be in the weeks ahead and as we have been in weeks in the past covering this portion of God's holy word, thrust again into a conflict that was constant in the life of Christ, a conflict between himself and the apostate Jewish leadership that is heightening up and intensifying their resistance of Him, as we are now getting nearer to the cross, which is only days away. And the issue that's going to confront the Lord this morning, that's going to comprise the heart of their conflict with Him, is the issue of authority. The issue of authority. Now, authority is essential to any truth claim, or personal belief for that matter. As we are well aware in our current culture... Authority lies in the, intervi- in the individual. In the individual. It is my belief that becomes the authority that governs my life and my actions and what I hold to be true and what I reject as truth. It is my own personal intuition, my own personal beliefs. If you were to challenge the question or belief of another, you may be confronted with what right or authority do you have to claim that anything that I say is less valid than what you say. The issue in our discussion of origins is also a matter of authority. The presumably unquestionable authority of science or the authority of the Word of God. The issue of authority was at the center of the Reformation. For the Roman Catholic Church, authority was centered in the church and in their councils. And the great truth of the Reformation that we hold to and that was rescued is that authority, the authority of God, resides in Scripture alone. Another contemporary issue dealing with authority would be the charismatic church. The question is, does the authority lie in my experience Or does authority lie in Scripture alone? For many within that movement, if you challenge their experience with Scripture or call into question supposed revelations or dreams or some other means of revelation they received, you will be faced with scorn because experience has the last word. It trumps everything. We have the emergent church, which is growing by leaps and bounds. Its influence, whether those who are in it identify themselves as such or not. And the issue, again, is authority. Within the emergent church, there is a disdain for anything stated with concrete absoluteness. They hate the dogmatizing of Scripture. In other words, to say, thus saith the Lord, and this is what the Lord means to them, is anathema. Truth is relative. Truth is uh, experienced. It's always being discovered. In a sense, it is in process. Scripture is for them only one source among many sources of truth. This can apply to the state. When the authority of the state and the government infringes upon the authority of God's Word, forcing Christians to act contrary to Scripture, then there is a conflict. If the state forbids us to speak the Word of God freely, there's going to be a conflict of authority. But we, under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, will obey Him rather than the dictates of men. 
So authority is a central issue in our experience as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. What authority do we rest on? What authority do we claim to stand on? And authority is the issue facing the Lord this morning in His conflict with these religious leaders. Jesus and the religious establishment are having a disagreement, a conflict of authority. And it is the same kind of conflict that exists today when the claims of Christ are stated with certainty and with clarity. And we'll see, as with these leaders, that those who refuse to submit to the authority of God as revealed in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God will abandon them and conceal Himself from them. Now read with me the passage, if you will, verses 23 through 27. And then we'll look at it more closely. When he entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. He also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Look back at verse 23 and let's note the conflict of authority. The conflict of authority. And we'll spend most of our time on this point. Again, Jesus has now entered into the temple area. If you'll remember, each night while he was in Jerusalem, he retreated in the evening to the city or the town of Bethany and then returned to Jerusalem the following morning, such is the case here, and he enters into the temple. And as he enters into the temple, they come to him and they confront him. This is a dramatic scene. The temple here refers to the general temple complex, namely the court of the Gentiles, which was on the outer part of the temple area. It was surrounded also with these colonnade paths. Mark 11.27 tells us that he was walking, so he's probably walking among these colonnades that surround this court of the Gentiles, which if you'll remember, he had cleared out only the day before. And while he was in this area, he was teaching. Luke 19, 47 through 48, a parallel passage, says that he was daily in the temple teaching and all the people were hanging on every word that he said. This is Jesus' third entrance into the temple since his arrival in chapter, verse 12 of chapter 21. If you'll remember the first time he entered was after the crowds welcomed him with shouts of Hosanna. And then Mark 11 tells us that after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. He then entered a second time into the city of Jerusalem and into the temple area on the following morning. And that's when he cleared everything out, when he drove out the money changers and those who were perverting the worship of God in the temple area. There, even the court of the Gentiles. 
He returned that evening again to Bethany, and now he has, for the third time since his arrival, come into the temple area. And as we've already mentioned, he is immediately met by the temple guardians, not to welcome him or to worship him, but as was their MO at this point, to challenge him. And I couldn't help but be reminded of Luke chapter 2, that precious scene when Christ was a youth and he was in the temple area, essentially sitting at the feet of the teachers to learn from them. Now himself established as the ultimate teacher, they come to him not to learn, but to challenge him and to confront him. A sad turn of events. Notice briefly two things about this scene. Just two things about this scene. First of all, it's location. It is the temple of God. This is the most holy place in Judaism. In the most holy city and the most holy place. The temple represented the presence of God among men and among His people. It is where His name dwelled. Where He caused His name to dwell. It's where He met with them. It's where His people gathered to worship. It's where they gathered to pray. It's where they gathered to offer sacrifices. This is why Jesus was so angry when the worship of this place and the holiness of this place that God established for His great name was being perverted. Notice secondly, the participants. God the Son Himself and the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now as we know, these are not just any Jews. These are not just any Jews, but these are the very leaders and the teachers of God's people. And these essentially, along with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are those among the Jews who made up the Sanhedrin, which was the primary ruling body of the nation of Israel. These are the ones who were supposed to be the keepers and the guardians of the truth of God. These were essentially the ones who were to fulfill the role of shepherding and protecting God's people. And here they are confronting their own Messiah, which as we've mentioned is a constant pattern throughout his ministry and particularly in his ministry leading up to this final week. You remember back in chapter 15, don't turn there, some of the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus in Jerusalem and said, and they challenged him for breaking the tradition of the elders. In chapter 16, more Pharisees and Sadducees came up and they were testing him to show them a sign from heaven. In chapter 19, some were sent to him to confront him about the issue of marriage and divorce. Each one of these, not a sincere attempt to gain truth, but to challenge his ministry constantly, constantly. And it's a conflict that will ultimately end, as we know, when members of the same group, the members of the same group, come to seize him by night because of the information of the traitor Judas with swords and with clubs, and then they'll secretly take him away and condemn him by a false trial, and then hand him over to the Romans to be crucified. For now, however, they are going to confront him over the issue of the nature of his authority. So let's look at the question, the second part there, verse 23. And note the nature then of the conflict. By what authority do you do these things and who gave you this authority? Now authority is essentially the right and the power to perform acts, to do something. And so they're asking him, what authority do you have to do these things that he's been doing? Now what are these things that they're talking about? It could refer to his acceptance of the praise when he entered into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. 
It could refer to his overturning the tables of the money changers and driving out those, again, who were perverting worship. It could refer to his teaching. However, there's no need to be specific here. Everything he did was with authority, and what is at the center of uh, their attention at this point are the events over the last few days. So these things likely include everything that has been happening since he first came to Jerusalem. And the fact is that all of Jesus' actions were a direct rebuke and challenge to them. It was a direct rebuke and a challenge to the very religious system that they presided over. And up to this point, get this, they had simply been made to sit on the sidelines as they observed everything that Jesus was doing that was a rebuke to them and they had to take it in humiliated silence. And so this is really the first time that they're going to break the silence now here confronting him. Now everything that they did was wrapped up into their authority and their identity as the leaders of Israel. And so this question is really loaded with disdain. It's loaded with a loathing of Jesus. They had a strong sense of being threatened by him. And the gospel writers repeatedly tell us that they were afraid of him. And as we'll see this morning also afraid of the crux crowds. Now the term here translated authority is exousia. Now that's not important other than just to say this, that it's a term that's used in a variety of different contexts. It speaks of God's authority. It speaks of the authority of God's representatives. It speaks of angelic authorities, both good and evil angels. It speaks of government and civil powers and so on. But here, essentially, it is a theological challenge. It's a theological challenge to Jesus, but it really has two levels to this question. At the first level of this question, when they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things, they're challenging him at the human level regarding his credentials as a rabbi and as a teacher of the law. There was a high priority placed in that culture on the training and the recognition of a rabbi by a superior authority. The Jewish scholar and historian Alfred Edersheim notes that in former times, a student trained under a rabbi, a well-known rabbi, and then at the completion of this training, this rabbi essentially invested him with the right to bear that title with the attendant privileges and authority that came with it. However, because that was so often abused, eventually that right of ordination, if we could call it that, was transferred over and centralized into the Sanhedrin who then bestowed on someone that title and that right. Jesus had none of this. He had none of this, and this was something that irked them, it perturbed them, it was bothersome to them. Not only that, it was standard practice for rabbis to appeal in their argument to someone who was a higher authority. It was their method of argumentation. You appealed to one rabbi, another appealed to another rabbi, and so on it went. And yet Jesus did none of that. He appealed to no one. He acted and spoke with unparalleled authority in everything he did by his own right. And again, that irked them, that was bothersome to them. It provoked them, which is what we see here behind their question. There is, however, another and more profound level to their challenge. Because the authority displayed in Jesus' ministry far exceeded that of mere human authority. It's far exceeded the mere authority of their rabbis and their, their traditions and their oral law. It was authority and power that could only come from God and could only come from one who was equal to God. That's what made it all the more offensive. 
Now there is a sense in which this question that they ask him is indeed a fair question. For anybody who's going to act in the way that Jesus did and to claim the things that Jesus did needs to give some account for their right to do so. And so it's not a totally out of place question. However, the problem is is that throughout his ministry, what should have been recognized then, they were continually blind to. Throughout his ministry, the reality of his power and the wisdom of his teaching was irrefutable. There was no question about it. And it was displayed before them over and over and over again. That becomes the central issue behind their question and what makes it such an example of their blindness. They never tried to discredit what he did. They only tried to discredit him personally. Let's be reminded then of some of these displays that we've already seen as we've gone through Matthew In chapter 7, at the end of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds, in verse 28, were amazed. And why were they amazed? Because he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. This was the authority of Jesus. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And essentially what Jesus is doing when he says that and when he teaches them in this manner, he is abolishing their whole structure of authority and establishing his own. Their authority rested in the oral law encased in their tradition. And Jesus absolutely dismisses that. And when he gives this Sermon on the Mount, he's essentially asserting an authority that supersedes every other rabbi, every scribe, every teacher of the law. And he does it unashamedly. That is an overwhelming fact. That's why the word used there is so dramatic. They were overwhelmed by this. This took them off of their feet. In 5.17 of Matthew 5, he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Which behind that statement is to say, there is an authority resident in Jesus that is equal to the very word of God itself, even to God himself. In Matthew chapter 8, we're confronted with this authority again. A centurion comes up to Jesus and asks him to heal his servant in verse 6. And in doing so, he was recognizing that Jesus had the power to remove this sickness, this disease from his servant. He had power over the physical realm. And he had the power to do that by the mere mention of the word. So he says in verse 9, The centurion does. Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed for I also am a man under authority. So this man knows that Jesus has authority that can demolish the disease and fulfill his request. That is an awesome authority and power and it's an awesome statement of faith. Think about that. He's saying that I recognize in you that you don't even have to touch my servant or be present. You merely give the word and what ails him will be taken away. And the more devastating point here is, of course, that it comes from a Gentile centurion who recognized this while his people remained blind in unbelief. 
In Matthew chapter 9, it gets heated up even more. The leaders chafed and mocked in their hearts when Jesus forgave the sin of the paralytic who was let down through the roof by his friends that provoked them. And Jesus looked at the mocking leaders knowing what they were thinking in their heart. And he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. And they had asked earlier in their hearts, who can forgive sins but God alone? And the answer is no one, no man. But Jesus did. He did. That is astounding. That is astounding. That is something that no mere man could say. And they knew that. And I want you just for a moment, just for a moment to consider the weight of this statement. Consider the weight of your statement. Put yourself in that scene. Put yourself in the presence of Jesus telling this man that his sins are forgiven. Why is that so weighty? Because he's saying that standing there as a man before them. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin has ruined every human being that's ever come into the face of this earth from Adam. And we and you, me and you, we are helpless to do anything about it. Any man is helpless to do anything about it. You have no power. You have no ability. You have no authority to do anything to take yourself out from under the crushing weight of guilt and of your sin. You are born guilty. All men are born guilty, a slave to sin. And yet, in light of that fact, Jesus is standing there as a man forgiving this person's sin. He has no sin of his own. Absolute authority over the sin of others to forgive them. Ultimately, he has the authority and the value to bear that very sin on the cross, which is behind his very act of forgiveness then. That is amazing authority, and that did not escape their notice. And this leads then to a second question for them. And that is then, where does this authority come from? Where does it come from? And so they say to him, who gave you, the, who gave you this authority? Who gave you this authority? Since no council, since the Sanhedrin, or no rabbi gave Jesus authority, where did it come from? It had to come from somewhere. Now, when they ask that question, I want you to remember something. Remember back in chapter 12. They had already accused Jesus when he healed the blind and the mute man. They had already accused him, as they had done at earlier points in his ministry, of healing by the power of who? Satan, essentially. Healing by the power of Beelzebub. And it's very possible that they're attempting to imply that here, although they certainly wouldn't say it because of the crowds. And again, in one sense, their question is fair. Jesus did receive his authority from another. He did receive it. He repeatedly told them that he received it. He repeatedly told them that his very presence and the power and the authority evident in his ministry did come from another. It was from the Father, the very God they claimed to worship. As a matter of fact, his entire ministry was an evidence of the Father's authority. Just listen to some of these statements as I read them from the Gospel of John. Jesus said, I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. I'm here on mission from God, the Father. He says later, I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. John 12, 49. 
He says later, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing for whatever the father does. These things the son also does in like manner. John 5, 19. He says again, the father gave him authority, speaking of the son, to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. John 5, 27 and 22. Speaking of his own life, he says in John 10, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. After his resurrection, he will tell all of his disciples in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Follow this statement very clearly. And this is the only way that we're going to understand what's really going on here and in the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus acted, he did so completely in the Father's authority and also equal to the Father's authority, sharing equally and fully in the Father's glory in everything that he did. In every word and deed, Jesus acted in the authority and the power of the Father as the Son by the Spirit. That means this then, every word and action that Jesus did was a Trinitarian act. It was not merely the act of a man, but it was the act of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in a glorious revelation of God Himself. This is why he says, in more than one occasion, the one who receives me receives not only me, but receives who? The one who sent me. Why? Because, as he would say in John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. Now, what does that mean then behind their question here? It means this. That question and their rejection of the authority of Jesus has profound implications to their spiritual blindness. It reveals not their confusion about Christ as a man, but it reveals their rebellion and their blindness and their rejection of God himself, the very one they claim to serve. This is a horrendous rejection of their Messiah and of the Lord. And it is because they were blind to their God. Listen to these familiar words. Verse 43 of John chapter 8. Don't turn there, I'll read it. Why do you not understand, Jesus asked these leaders. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. Why can you not hear my word? Because you are of your father the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Why are they asking this question in light of so much evidence? It is because they were blind. They did not see the work of the father in the life of Christ because they were enslaved to their father, the devil. Those are Jesus' words. Now, we're going to address this in more detail next week, but let me note here that recognizing the authority of Jesus as Lord is a beginning point of salvation and an essential evidence of eternal life abiding in you. Essential. And before we move on, I would just ask this question, is do you have that conviction in your heart before God? Do you believe in Christ's absolute authority over your life and in His Word? Do you believe that? What is the final deciding word to you on all matters, your opinion or Scripture? 
Think about that and we'll return to it next week. Notice secondly here, and we'll go more quickly. Verse 24, challenge to their authority. Jesus says to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Now notice what Jesus does. He turns the question back over on their heads. And Mark 11.30 records it more fully and more forcefully, noting that at the end of that statement, Jesus gave them a command, an imperative, answer me, answer me, directing his question to them forcefully. Now they're on the defensive. The spotlight is shining on them. And there's a few things going on here when Jesus is asking this question. In one sense, Jesus is firmly within the rabbinic, rabbinic method of argumentation, answering a question with a question. That's how they dialogued back and forth. But even more than that, by turning the question this way, he's wisely avoiding the trap that they're trying to set for him, trying to make him say something so that they could charge him with blasphemy. Jesus is here being shrewd as a serpent and innocent as a dove. But the real brilliance here, thirdly, is that the answer to his question is the answer to their own. The answer to his question is the answer to their question. Now, why does he mention John the Baptist here? Of all the things that he could say, why John the Baptist? It's because the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus are inextricably bound. John was the forerunner of Jesus. He was the one prophesied to announce the coming Messiah. He was the one who would call the nation to repentance. And Jesus is the one whom he revealed. So the same one who sent John is the same one who sent Jesus. Guess what? They're stuck. They are stuck. And far from avoiding the question, Jesus is forcing them to face their own willful ignorance, while at the same time, He's exposing their ignorance to the people whom they claim to be above and the teachers of. And this is essentially then a challenge to their authority. Jesus is challenging their authority in this statement. Why? How is He doing that? Because their authority rests in their supposed knowledge of the law. Their supposed ability to be teachers of the law and guardians of God's truth to the people. That's where they got their authority. Their supposed insight into the word of God is what exalted them before the people. And here they're being made to face their own ignorance and darkened before those very same people. Essentially what Jesus is doing is he's pulling out from under them the foundation on which they stand before the people. By analogy, if you had a teacher at school who was ignorant of the most significant issues in their discipline and who was unaware or unable to answer basic questions, that teacher would lose their authority in their eye, your eyes. They would have no influence over you. Why? Because they have no position to teach you anything. It's essentially what's going on here or what he's challenging them. You have the two most significant figures in the history of the Jews, John the Baptist sent to announce the Messiah, and the Messiah himself, and they are going to claim ignorance. And their self-proclaimed spiritual authority and their credibility before the people is being challenged. And they clearly, clearly felt the weight of this. Look at verse 25. In verse, the first part of verse 26. And so after Jesus asked them this question... It says in the middle of verse 25 there, they began reasoning among themselves. That is, they started to deliberate. They started to discuss the best way to answer. Essentially, they're in a bind and they know it. They know that they're stuck. They're between a rock and a hard place. And so what do they say? If we say from heaven, then he will say to us, why did you not believe him? 
And this presents essentially two challenges to these hypocrites. First of all, John's entire ministry, again, was to point to Christ to say that He is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He is your Messiah. He is the expected one. He's the one you should be looking for. Therefore, to admit that John's ministry was from God would at the same time force them to admit that Jesus Himself is from God, which would make them have to face an even stronger question of why did you not believe Him? But there's a second part to this. Because John the Baptist not only pointed to Christ, but he also condemned them. He called them a brood of vipers. He called them serpents. He told them that the judgment of God, the acts of God, was already laid at the root of the trees in John cha- or Matthew chapter 3. And so to affirm that John was from God would not only make them admit that Jesus was from God, it would also affirm Jesus, uh, John's condemnation of their very own religious structure of themselves. And so they had to remain silent. Look at their second reasoning. If we say from man, we fear the crowd, for they all hold John to be a prophet. And this is amazing. Again, remember that this is, as we are going through the account of the Gospels, this is after 400 years, essentially, of prophetic silence. No prophet had risen among Israel. That's attested to in both Scripture and rabbinic literature. No prophet had risen among those years after Malachi. And here John appears to Israel and almost universally he's received as a prophet of God and he is highly revered. And not only that is he highly revered for his ministry, but he's also a Jewish martyr put to death by the hands of Herod who many of the Jews also hated and despised. So in their minds, John is essentially like a national hero. And so they reason if they deny John as a prophet, the crowds will only turn on them and even start a riot possibly, bringing down not only a condemnation on themselves, but the Romans on the Jewish nation, which was a constant fear that they had. And so essentially they're afraid of the crowds, much like Herod himself was in Matthew 14, 5, why he didn't put him to death. He was afraid of the crowds, and here they are. Now let me ask you a question. Ready? What do you notice is glaring about their reasoning? What is missing about their reasoning? What do you see that is not there? What do you see that is not there? I think it's obvious. You probably already noticed. It's this. They are absolutely unconcerned about the truth. They're absolutely unconcerned about the truth. These religious leaders of Israel here are revealed for what they are. Man-fearing, self-centered, religious hypocrites. All the while bearing this false facade of religious dedication to God. That's the religious structure of Israel there. They could not care less about what is true. They only care about what is going to serve their own ends and their own glory. That's all they care about. They don't care about what's true about Scripture. They don't care about what's true to the glory of God. They don't care about the implications of His ministry. They only care about their authority in the nation, in their eyes of the people, and their own self-created glory. That's it. That's it. And they have a total lack of love for God. They do not go to Him in prayer. They show no dependence on Him. They show no sensitivity to know if He might actually be the one at work. They couldn't care less. And let me suggest to you that this is an anatomy of the fallen mind in the response to the truth of God. 
and much of the rejection of Jesus, not simply in these religious leaders, but in all men. It exposes the reasoning of the depraved mind. It has nothing to do with the commitment to the truth. It has nothing to do with understanding the true nature and the true heart of God. There's such a righteous face put on so much rejection of the truth of God's word whether it be through overtly sinful movements like the homosexual agenda, whether it be through liberal Christianity, it always has this face of piety that's a false piety, the same face that they were trying to put on in their own wretched lives in confronting the Lord Jesus. It had only to do with protecting reputation, protecting a sense of security and comfort, and protecting their own conscience from whatever would condemn them. That's John 3. The light or the darkness hates the light because when it comes to the light, its deeds are exposed as what? Evil. Evil. They have to reject him because if they don't reject him and if they don't reject John, they are exposed for what they are and they are done and they know that. This is self-deception and the inward working of sin on the fallen mind at its finest, at its most clear. And I would again be remiss if I did not ask this question. Is there any in this church who in the silence and the false secrecy of your own heart, and I say a false secrecy because we sang about it, didn't we? God sees. God sees who have the same kind of thinking. That when you are confronted with the true demands of the gospel, you are not driven by whether it's true and what your response would be, but only what is expedient for you in that moment. That your response is driven by what it will cost you, what you would have to admit about yourself, or maybe how you appear in the face of others. God knows. Let's look at verse 26. And look at the capitulation of authority. So they're forced by their own pride and fear to acknowledge their ignorance. They say, before these watching crowds and before Jesus himself, they say, we do not know. This is astounding. Astounding. It's a humiliating admission, but understand this. By their own reasoning, they would rather deal with the humiliating consequences of standing before these crowds and saying, I do not know, rather than admit the consequences of saying the truth about Jesus. What does this remind you of? Romans 1.18. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The clear truth about Christ is evident before them. It's not in question. It's not hazy. It's not unclear. And they suppress it. They hold it down. They reject Him. And they are without excuse. And as was mentioned already, this confession delegitimizes, or it should have, their whole system and false construct of authority. But it doesn't, because the depraved mind is going to believe whatever it wants to believe. That's why you can have a charismatic prophet be proven totally false, and it doesn't shake their system at all. Why? Because they're like these Pharisees. It's not interest in truth. It's not understanding and trying to apply yourself to understand the implications of what is before you and what is in the Word of God. Here these spiritual ones, these learned ones, had exalted themselves above all the people of Israel, and yet they stand before them and say, we don't know you who just healed the blind, you who just came into Jerusalem on the shouts of the praises of the people of God, you who have confronted us and confounded us with your wisdom continually, and the best that they can say is, I don't know. It's ridiculous. They should know. They better know as the teachers of Israel, and yet they don't. They don't. 
If you remember the account in John chapter 9, after the blind man was healed, they would presume to exalt themselves and say, you're a mere riffraff and you're teaching us, us who have the repository of the truth of God, and yet they could not even explain how Jesus healed this blind man. And so this blind man, this riffraff in their eyes, says to them, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Why can I see that and you can't? Because it's willful. It's willful. And I want to suggest to you, too, that this is akin, in some ways, to agnosticism. Agnosticism is not humble seeking for the truth. It's as much open rebellion as atheism is. And we have to understand that. Agnosticism is not humility. It's rebellion to God. It's a rejection of His clear revelation that hides behind a mask of humility. Paul said in Romans 8, 7, the one who does not submit himself to the law of God is what? At hostility with God. Let's not be deceived by that and faithfully and gently and lovingly make that clear. Let's look lastly at verse 27, the concealment of authority. This is where it's all heading. Jesus withholds his answer, which they already know the truth to. They already know the answer to it. But Jesus says, nor will I say to you by what authority I do these things. And this is devastating. Essentially, this is an act of judgment. It's an act of abandonment by Christ on these leaders. They have rejected him, so he has rejected them. They have seen the light, they've witnessed his life, they've heard his teaching, and they've rejected him in favor of keeping their life here, in keeping their reputation here, in keeping their own glory. So Jesus essentially says, fine, that's fine. You've made that statement, I am going to conceal from you the answer that you're looking for, which again, they already know. He's essentially refusing to throw pearls before swine, or as Proverbs 26 says, to answer a fool according to his folly. He's withholding from them any more truth. Understand this. Jesus is making no attempt here to evangelize them. He is not calling them to the truth. He is not appealing to them. He is not trying to reason with them. He is simply refusing to reveal any more to them than he has. He's confirming them in their rebellion and in their rejection. This is judicial abandonment. And we are going to be confronted with this repeatedly in the parables of Jesus as we go through. And this is a frightening place to be. It's a terrifying condition. But it's the consequence of continually beholding the truth and rejecting it and failing to submit to Him in faith and trust and repentance. And there is a point in everybody's life, in every sinner's life, there is a point where the rejection of the truth reaches its limit in the patience of God and God simply gives them over to their sin. He abandons them. He abandons them as an act of judgment. That means he simply removes, even while they are alive on earth, any hope of salvation. And it's a devastating thing. It's a devastating thing. And, for example, these same people are going to... And the problem with that is, is this, is that when God gives someone over to their sin, it appears in the minds of the person given over that they may have won, that they may have the victory, that, in fact, they are the ones who are in the right. For example... These same people are going to falsely condemn Jesus at the end of the week and put him to death. And it's going to appear as if they had won. And in their minds, they're going to think that they have won, that they were victorious in this conflict that they had with this false Messiah, this Jesus. And Jesus is going to say in Luke twenty-two fifty-three, 53, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. They're yours. You've been given over to it and it has been given over to you. Revel in it. But consequences will come. Consequences will come. Sadly, they wouldn't know that until much later. This is Romans 1. 
He gave them over three times. He gave them over. He gave them over in verse 24 in the lust of their hearts to impurity. In verse 26, he gave them over to degrading passions. In verse 28, he gave them over to a depraved mind. No doubt we live in a culture that thinks that they have won. They are getting rid of this Christianity. They're getting rid of this morality. They're getting rid of this absolute claim that God's the one on the throne. And they no doubt as they kill and persecute Christians around the world and maybe in our own nation will think that they have won when in fact it is being given over as an act of judgment. Our death is our glory. Their death will be to eternal punishment. And we should weep for that. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 deals with the same thing. We don't have time to go there. Let me mention that only God knows when this time is. We don't know when it is. There are some people who get to the end of their life after rejecting the truth and are saved. We don't know. But the warning is real. And the flip side of this is that we always have the opportunity to yield to Christ. So in one sense, they could have turned to Him. Even Judas could have at the end of his life. But they would not. And as we'll see next week, some would and some did. The most unlikely ones in their eyes, but it was the ones willing to acknowledge their sin. But for the self-righteous, those who love self more than life, love the self-life more than turning to Christ, who refuse to be broken and exposed, only judgment. But for us who know Him, we have that glorious celebration, don't we, this morning, of thanking Him for His grace, for taking the judgment we deserve upon himself, for rising from the dead, defeating the enemy that threatens us all because of our sin, defeating it for us, rising from the dead, and soon returning, we hope, on our behalf. Let's pray and prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Our Lord, we thank you for the depth of your holiness, the depth of your truth which is displayed before us this morning, that you are at the same time the one who judges, rejects those who reject you, condemns such high-handed rebellion, and yet the one who's going to the cross at the hands of that rebellion, the one who would go there and suffer in the place of sinners such as us, the one who would rise from the dead, who would send the Spirit, who would call to yourself a people for your own glory extending to them infinite and incredible grace. And we are a part of those people who know you here, and we thank you. And we rejoice to remember your grace to us in the Lord's Supper this morning. Will you help us to come with hearts prepared, hearts humbled, but hearts rejoicing. And as was prayed earlier this morning, whatever work you need to do in each heart, I pray that you would do it. And that you would keep some here who may be in that same boat as these Pharisees, or at the least may be unbelieving, that you would today make them believing in you. Commit this time to you, and we pray in your precious name. Amen.